Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Velvet Podcast. This is episode two. My name is Connie. I am your host. I'm also a master's graduate. I'm the founder, president, and CEO of Velvet, and I'm studying clinical psychology. So we're going to launch into my master's thesis for this episode and the next couple of episodes. It's much more fun than it sounds, believe me. It's not actually boring. You know, you hear master's thesis and you start snoring and picturing someone really boring droning on and on. But actually, my master's thesis is about men and masculinity, particularly about the crisis of masculinity that men have sort of been facing since the 90s till now. What I did was I pulled from critical theory, cultural studies, and psychoanalytic theory to look at how men are positioned in society, how they deal with their masculinity, and more than that, what their masculinity represents and enacts in the world. Now, a lot of you might be wondering, okay, what makes you as a woman qualified to talk about men and masculinity? So I'm going to kind of reference the Man Enough podcast here. I'm a big fan of Man Enough. So on the Man Enough podcast, there's, you know, a cast of of men, but there's also a few women who come on the podcast to talk about what it means to be man enough, what masculinity means. And at one point, one of the men on the panel asked one of the women, what qualifies you as a woman to talk about what it means to be a man? what qualifies you? He was a person of color. He was an African-American man. And she said to him, the same thing that qualifies you to talk about whiteness and what it means to be white. The oppressed knows everything about the oppressor and the oppressed can see the oppressor with different eyes. So as a woman and as a critical thinker, I can see masculinity in a way from the outside looking in And I've had masculinity enacted upon me. I see it with a certain set of eyes and a certain perspective that a man himself might not even see. He might be too close to it. So I'll give you that in terms of talking about maybe my credentials in investigating masculinity. I've also done an incredible amount of research for this thesis. I've looked at many, many different sources analyzing masculinity and its representation Now, of course, if you don't agree with some of these analyses or you have something to say, DM us on Instagram at Velvet App. That's at V-L-V-T-A-P-P. Send us voice notes and we might actually discuss them and play them on next week's podcast. So without further ado, let's launch into the introductory chapter of my master's thesis. So before we get into it, I'll just quickly summarize that my thesis investigates the crisis of masculinity through the lens of certain case studies, the biggest one in the thesis is O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson was a very complicated star figure, a very complicated icon who came to represent many different iterations of masculinity throughout his career in the public eye. However, I also look at other contact sport athletes. I investigate meaning through stand-up comedy, and I look at different sort of cultural texts that are really seminal and formative from uh, mythologies by Roland Barthes to Freud to Carl Jung's work. The thesis is very uh, psychology heavy. It's very psychoanalytic. So I think there's a lot that I can offer you in terms of understanding how masculinity operates in the world, operates here in the West, how we understand it. And I think you'll really enjoy listening and you'll learn a lot along the way about cultural texts and ideas that have been written not only about masculinity, but about gender and about relationships and the way we see ourselves, how that's reflected in the media, how it impacts our interpersonal relationships as well. When I was 14 years old, my English teacher walked into class a bit more chipper than usual with a look of sly delight that I would later understand profoundly. She turned off the overhead lights and rolled the television into the room. We were watching a film that day based on the play we'd read by Tennessee Williams. So the showing started off a little slow, but I didn't mind. I'd always loved black and white pictures and their lush soundtracks, transatlantic accents, costumes, and the showy glamour of Hollywood's golden age. I had watched many of those movies on my own time, so I was certain I knew what to expect for the next hour and a half, but then something amazing happened. Marlon Brando appeared on screen, swaggering into frame as the hunky, brutish Stanley Kowalski, all id and nothing else, 
and I was mesmerized, and so was everybody else. Stanley's flailing, weeping, and wailing like a child in desperation for Stella, his macho utilitarian frame, his unpredictable and terrifying demonstrations of dominance and physical strength, his tender expressions of affection, and his outrageous outbursts establishing supremacy were all perfectly concocted to completely captivate the audience of adolescent girls that I sat amidst that day, all of whom couldn't pry their eyes away from the screen. To describe this moment as an awakening for many in that classroom would have been an understatement. Brando as Kowalski took us on a roller coaster ride that afternoon, and a memorable one at that, and the question I was left asking myself was why. It's safe to say that kind of masculinity, Kowalski's particular brand of what would contemporarily be called toxic manhood, has been seriously questioned and criticized today. Even in the early 2000s, when I had watched that film in class, smacking your woman and crying for her desperately while the neighbors watched would have been considered abhorrent by anyone's standards. This is an appropriate, abusive behavior and should not be tolerated. There are laws in place preventing it, resources available should it occur, and women are told to never return to a man should he strike you but once. Stanley is hardly an aspirational icon as a romantic partner. The man is figuratively and literally destructive of everything in his path. He is reckless, impulsive, he grunts, he barks, and he meows like an animal. And he gets excited almost exclusively by intimidating everyone around him. His catchphrase, which is one that he shouts very loudly midway throughout the film before completely destroying everything in his kitchen, goes a little something like this. Every man is a king, and I'm the king around here. Stanley Kowalski is the kind of man that any sane, level-headed person who knows what's best should theoretically run from. And yet, every single girl in my class would have given all the money in her piggy bank to be Mrs. Stella Kowalski for just a couple of hours. I've since shown the film to many of my friends, both male and female, over the course of my young adult life. Even the most politically correct among them are always ultimately in agreement. Marlon Brando is hot, sure, but the jury repeatedly comes in with the same verdict no matter who's watching. Brando as Kowalski is out of the stratosphere sexy. I often find myself surrounded by girlfriends who scoff at the idea of a man paying the whole bar bill or opening the car door for them as they get into the shotgun seat. They insist on going Dutch, insist on dating evolved males, ones who would sooner call a handyman to fix a problem around the house than do it themselves. This is the kind of man who would slink away quietly if he saw his girlfriend getting hit on at a bar, or who, at most, would try to work things out with his competition by way of a little constructive, productive dialogue. One of my girlfriends recently recounted an episode in which her boyfriend, now ex, a young guy of 25, actually hid behind her when a threatening drunk man approached them on one of their evening strolls in downtown Copenhagen. This, by all definitions, is what many, not all, postmodern men look like, and this is certainly the kind of man that many of my girlfriends have romantic relationships with. The influential men in my life with whom I've had romantic relationships can inarguably be categorized as ultimate alpha males. They have gotten into fights for me, they have provided for me, they have protected me. I've dated men who insisted on walking on the outside of the sidewalk so a car would hit them and not me just in case one would so happen to swerve in our direction. Perhaps my retro tendencies and attraction have to do with an old school upbringing. I was raised in infancy in part by my grandparents, two Europeans fresh off the boat from a small Ionian island, and by my mother who, when my sister's first boyfriend didn't stand up to shake her hand upon meeting her, crossed the young man off her list then and there. To this day, her first question when we come home from dates is still, did he pay? A man should be a man, she would say. And I agreed. I still agree. But what does that really mean? Growing up, I somehow intuitively knew that my mother's preoccupation had nothing to do with finance. Her real inquiry was regarding whether her daughter's potential suitors were men in the figurative sense of the word. She wanted to know if they were performing masculinity properly and successfully. And certainly, she was predisposed. The most positive male influence in my life, her father, was the epitome of successful masculinity. He left the Greek army to be with my grandmother in Canada. One day, he just got on a boat and never looked back. 
He never came home to her without a gift, no matter how small, and this trend is one that continued with his granddaughters until his dementia worsened. My grandfather provided. He was generous, giving, strong, protective, stoic, funny, a light in the darkness, the kind of man everyone loved, looked up to, wanted to be like, and wanted to be around. There was nothing he couldn't do, couldn't fix, couldn't make right. People came up to me at his funeral, people I had never met, telling me stories about the kind of man, capital M, he was. It goes without saying that my grandfather was of a rare breed. There was a rule the men I grew up around held themselves to a particular standard. Manhood was something they wore like a badge of honor, reflected in their appearance, the way they carried themselves, their priorities, their preoccupations, their love, their protectiveness, and their loyalty. I have known men like this and consider myself lucky for it. But I have also known others too, and these were men who were violent, abusive, caused nothing but chaos, leaving only destruction in their wake. The list of these lesser men, lowercase m, can be read from my personal life as well. And so while this endeavor is indeed an investigation into the crisis of masculinity and into the potential truths and conflicting truths about who men are, it has also been a learning process, a discovery of sorts, and a gazing into the depths of myself, my drives, my desires, shedding light upon the conflicting and potential truths about who I really am, what postmodern women may want, and who they too may ultimately be. Violence is something that should never be tolerated. Rape, aggression, emotional and mental and physical abuse of any kind all fall under that umbrella. And yet violence is something that pervades interpersonal relationships on a quotidian level. It suffuses contemporary pornography on a level that is difficult to even fathom. Violence between the sexes is a reality, one that gets brushed under the rug much too often. It is damaging, it can be world-shattering, and it is also in certain circumstances part of what makes men attractive. Make no mistake about it, this work is not an endorsement of violent behavior. Rather, it is a brutal and honest acknowledgement of sorts. A generous part of what made Stanley Kowalski so appealing to that preteen audience in my 10th grade classroom was his unpredictable and powerful potential. None of us could put our finger on the pulse of it back then. In truth, I'm still attempting to do so. But what I couldn't ignore and still can't are the conflicting, contradictory expectations we have for men. My grandfather was the gentlest man I knew. My fondest memories with him were playing a game of wolf with my sister or sitting outside on a picnic blanket drawing pictures of little birds on paper. He loved animals and children, loved babies, loved long walks, loved gazing out of bay windows at the leaves and the trees and smoking king-size Rothmans. He lived for simple pleasures, and he was the absolute sweetest soul. But if you messed with him or his family, Lord knows he was ready to attack. We ask so much of our men. They need to be strong and sweet, potent and gentle, dangerous and protective, faithful with options. The demands we make upon them as a culture are confusing and conflicting, and the more society progresses, the less space we make and the less acceptance we have for their baser, impulsive, aggressive instincts. Nevertheless, the instincts remain, the impulses get repressed, and men are left to their own devices trying to negotiate the many different expectations, drives, fantasies, desires, dreams, and nightmares they embody on the regular. I was two years old when Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were found stabbed to death in Brentwood, California. And yet I grew up with a somewhat innate awareness of who O.J. Simpson was. He was in the ether, so to speak. While I was much too young to remember the details of the actual unfolding of events, Simpson's name had been on people's lips forever, it seemed. To this day, references to Simpson can be found in rap lyrics, television shows, films, radio, podcasts, stand-up comedy sketches. The list is endless and reflects everything from his football career to his domestic abuse to the murders and the trial of the century. In 2018, one must ask themselves why a case declared closed in 1995 and why a man declared criminally not guilty by a California state jury are both still in such predominant question and circulation today, more than two decades later. 
Certainly, the entire situation begs so many questions and provides so few answers, leaving us, the public, to write our own stories in an attempt to achieve closure. But the trauma of the murders and the extreme conflicting archetypes Simpson personifies as a man, celebrity, and icon have yet to be successfully negotiated by culture to this day. This, I argue, is why we can't leave O.J. alone. His star text, his iconicism, his representations, and his image mean too much to us and are too contradictory to assimilate into one idea of a man. Men seem to identify with the complexities present in the curious case of who O.J. Simpson really is. This was something I had begun observing in my youth as well. The age-old adage of black and white was no longer useful to me as I grew older and began analyzing real life. The grayness of it all confused me even more, and I was continuously confronted with mixed messages, mostly from men. They've loved me and hated me. They've protected and betrayed me. They've taken care of me, endangered me. They've both mended and broken my heart. More than anything, though, I've watched as men, parents, friends, extended family members, and lovers, struggled profoundly, wrestling with the demons and the angels on their shoulders, and I've too often witnessed the chaotic and terrifying downward spiral as those demons succeeded in taking hold. In my own opinion, winning this epic inner battle is what makes a man deserving of a capital M or not. Perhaps one can write it off as people being complicated and nothing less or more. But as an analyst, it's hard to ignore the signs, the signifiers, the hints, the clues, and everything in circulation all at once. When I think of all the things men are supposed to be, even I can sympathize with their attempt to negotiate culture's mixed messages, let alone what's swirling around in their respective psyches. There's a coldness to being a man. Chris Rock says in his 2018 Netflix special, Tambourine, and it tugged at my heartstrings. Only women, children, and dogs are loved unconditionally. My grandma used to say, a broke man is like a broke hand. Can't do nothing with it. As an analyst, I had to consider his point of view. Rock's astute observation played right into my research. In just a couple of sentences, he and his grandma concisely summed up my entire thesis. And then I thought, surely there's more where this came from. It should be made clear that my sympathy for men does not negate my sympathy and empathy for the plight of women. Texts upon texts of feminist writings have been devoted to the conflicting demands that have been made by culture, by men, upon women. I'm all too familiar with those. I live and breathe them every day. And so my intrigue about what I don't know and what I don't relate to brought me down this particular path instead. The cultural concept and performance of masculinity has a temporal and sexual history worth investigating, specifically, I thought, by someone like me, for despite the variant kinds of relationships I've had with men over the course of my lifetime thus far, men have inspired and continue to inspire me in many ways. And while none of my writings condone bad behavior, they are an investigation into it. My favorite question to ask is why, and not why did OJ commit those murders, but instead, why do men relate to him? They did and they still do. The evidence abounds. So this work is a collection of that evidence, an attempt to shed light upon who our men really are and who they may really be today. In Ways of Seeing, John Berger writes, A man's presence is dependent upon the promise of power which he embodies. The promised power may be moral, physical, temperamental, economic, social, or sexual, but its object is always exterior to the man. A man's presence suggests what he is capable of doing to or for you. The pretense is always towards a power which he exercises on others. John Berger on Men, Masculinity, Potency, and Power suggests that notions of what it means to be a man in society are inextricable from agency. According to Berger, the measure of a man is about what he is capable of. This completely explains Chris Rock's astute broken man, broken hand joke. Men are only significant insofar as what they can do. And this too is nothing if not a fantastic place to start when mediating upon the curious cultural case of O.J. Simpson. Berger's analysis proposes a variety of problems, for man is capable of acting in highly contradictory ways. 
Formerly an icon of masculinity, Simpson is a man who has embodied many different kinds of power throughout his career in the public eye. However, before his represented personhood or representational masculinity can be placed under the microscope, an inquiry must be made into the nature of fame itself. In other words, Simpson's story is only accessible to us by way of the vehicle that is media, that is, by way of his celebrity. Richard Dyer explains, Stars articulate what it is to be a human being in contemporary society. The layman relates to the star or celebrity based on their shared humanity. However, the celebrity is also held to a higher standard, put up on a pedestal by the individual, by society, and by culture, particularly because of their representational nature. A celebrity is not just a person in the world. He or she is a subject or a vessel for the public's desire, dreams, and so forth. By way of this process, a celebrity becomes an icon, a configuration of disparate texts. Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, Steve McQueen, Marlon Brando, all of these exist more so as abstractions than they do or ever did as people or performers. As an example, the mere mention of Monroe is practically interchangeable with the concept of sexuality, particularly of the feminine nature. Simpson, too, is a cultural abstraction. Rather, he is iconographic of many conflicting ideas. This is precisely what renders him so anxiety-provoking. But what is critical to remember here is that his representationality is fundamental to understanding why. The tensions and negotiations around the production of meaning around O.J. Simpson can be understood only by examining his celebrity and iconicism created by the media. In laying bare these quiet workings of celebrity by way of media, Freud's notion of fetish helps us understand this process. Sigmund Freud's contributions to the realm of cultural studies are not to be discounted, and while psychology itself has evolved past the Freudian framework, the doctor's writings explain much in the way of outlining for his reader the elemental roles subconsciousness and sexuality play in day-to-day -day life. In his work Fetishism, Freud explains, the fetish is a substitute for a particular and quite special element that has been extremely important but later lost. Of course, the doctor references his patients, generating an example of an individual's sexual fetish in his work, so as to illustrate the mechanisms of how said phenomenon could occur. However, it should not be ignored that fetishization occurs as well in cases of extreme stardom, like OJ, Elvis, and so on. The media's fetishizing of an individual star is often a vital step to establishing a public figure as a bona fide celebrity. In terms of etymology, fetish is always described and understood actively with verbs in Freud's text, as in the fetish achieves and maintains. Put simply, the fetish does work and is a powerful acting agent. It endows something, and be it OJ's physical body or OJ's cultural iconography, both have been fetishized at length in terms of sexuality, race, masculinity, and so on. The very creation of the fetish is a creation of a reminder of the values, concepts, and notions the fetish maintains, sustains, and represents. This is the case for Freud's sake and the psyche of his individual patient, and for the sake of this work in culture. Freud says trauma, the true nature of fetish, should normally have been given up, but the fetish is precisely designed to preserve it from extinction. History and context come into play with OJ precisely to create the fetish, that is to fetishize him as a site of race, sex, masculinity, and power, specifically because these are cultural pillars that cannot be forgotten, and furthermore because at some point in time, the trauma of OJ presented the media with the option and opportunity to fetishize him. In fact, I would go so far as to stipulate that the fetishization of OJ eventually became inescapable. Critical to fetish, Freud outlines, is trauma, and the trauma of OJ Simpson left culture itself with only one available action, namely to fetishize the celebrity, forever rendering him a collection of concepts and making the mere mention of his name more historically significant than even OJ himself could ever have dreamed. Simpson created a paradox in his abuse and murders, a paradox so strong that the resulting trauma triggered a need to act, render, and reinterpret. 
OJ would never again simply be a football star, an actor, a product endorser, a husband, a friend, or even a murderer. Too many contradictory abstractions represented by Simpson that were all firing at once. In order for culture to quell the anxiety of too many identities, Simpson had to be fetishized as so much more. O.J. Simpson, the site of cultural negotiation, was born. The fetishizing of O.J. yields possibilities for understanding and reinterpreting, allowing media and culture to edit old schemas and generate new ones as it blazes forward. With the introduction of the fetish, close attention must be devoted to O.J.'s body to understand what is so anxiety-generating and threatening about him to culture and society on a broader scale. Judith Butler's work on performativity, specifically in relation to gender, is foundational theory about the operations and meanings of bodies. As outlined by Butler in her work Bodies That Matter, performativity can be understood by acknowledging that bodies are both powerful and performative. They are vehicles and vessels, profoundly representational, and imbued with social, historical, racial, sexual, and cultural cues. Bodies are constantly and consistently being read by people. A woman walking along a dark sidewalk at night will cross the street when she sees a tall, powerful-looking man approaching her from down the block. If instead a young boy were approaching, that woman would probably not recede from the situation. She may even ask him where his mother is and if he was lost. The tall, powerful man walking towards the woman may in fact be the most gentle, kind, and benevolent human being on the planet. But this matters not, for what she was reading were the signs of his body and cross-referencing them with the knowledge stored in her cultural, social, sexual, historical, and experiential bank. This snapshot of a moment is a small example of how bodies are read, and this close reading process gets taken to new heights with readings of celebrity bodies. As Susan Bordeaux writes, the body carries human history with it, And so too does the cultural consciousness, applying knowledge so as to generate historically informed readings. In other words, materiality of the body becomes rethought as the effect of power. It is important to note that male and female bodies are read differently. Butler speaks on this further in Performative Acts and Gender Constitution, citing theorists like Simone de Beauvoir in her establishment of the cultural constructedness of gender itself. When de Beauvoir writes that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. She employs the same kind of active language that Freud utilizes when describing fetish. Gender and bodies are not things, but rather processes of representation, ceaselessly doing work, acting as renewed reminders of values, concepts, and so on. Butler and de Beauvoir's argument is that through acting, performing, in accordance with societal and cultural rules and regulations in a consistent manner, one can be identified as masculine or feminine, as a man or as a woman, as an abiding, gendered self. Butler's doing of gender speaks to this work in many ways, none in the least of which pertains to O.J. Simpson's doing or expression of masculinity. As previously outlined by Berger, masculinity is understood through the lenses of power and control. There is a boundedness to the male body that is paramount to understanding successful masculine bodily and conceptual expression. Female sexuality is unbounded, soft, round, and unending, associated with mysteriousness, fluidity, an uncontrollable cycle. This undistinguished, loose, fluid, and out-of-control quality that femininity embodies renders the feminine threatening in its most conceptual incarnation due to the fundamental unknowableness of it. Men, on the other hand, are made up of right angles and straight lines, their jaws, their genitals, their muscles. Their entire physical structure is meant to be utilitarian, the hard body pointing to the hard phallus. Male sexual expression is supposed to be bounded, dominant, controlling, and sometimes even excitingly dangerous in its aggression. But even the danger embodied by men points to one very important facet of what it means to be a man in the 21st century, the simple and critical element of control, be it of oneself or of one's environment. A male who performs this quality and performs it well is upheld and celebrated culturally, socially, 
and societally as a man. Contradictorily, the moment of ejaculation is one of loss of control, of surrender of the man to a sexual force, temptation, or pull greater than himself. And again, as a result of paradox, since the fluid, loose, and uncontrollable is characteristically associated with a threatening, a noble feminine, sexual anxiety is generated. And we have seen this time and again. Simpson's nickname, The Juice, is particularly relevant here and becomes even more so after his homicidal actions, his flying off the handle, his uncontrolled behavior. However, most significant to masculinity is for one to be bounded and unstoppable, dominant and powerful, the kind of person who won't take no for an answer. Masculinity itself is a complicated concept. In Hegemonic Masculinity, Rethinking the Concept, the authors provide a detailed and comprehensive survey of many ethnographic studies conducted on men and the consequences of their position within culture and society, specifically investigating popular anxieties about men. Masculinity represents not a certain type of man, but rather a way that men position themselves through practices. The active language employed by the authors here is not to be discounted because it traces back to Butler, de Beauvoir, and the very notion of gender as doing, as performance. First and foremost, there are many different types of hegemonic masculinity. And there's also many different levels of compliance to masculinity as a concept and a practice. There is a multiplicity of masculinities, which is quite central to this thesis. For an agreement with the comedians and their routines about Simpson, I will also be examining and arguing for the multiplicity of contradictory archetypes that a man is capable of embodying, sometimes all at once. That very multiplicity is in fact where popular anxieties about men stem from, and specifically where anxieties about Simpson can be traced back to. If masculinity were a hierarchy, hegemonic masculinity would occupy the top rung. And furthermore, only a minority of men enact it. Perhaps this is also why hegemonic masculinity is so venerated in culture. Very few men practice or perform it completely right. One of the main studies analyzed by Connell and Messender Schmidt found that hegemonic masculinity was specifically deployed in understanding the popularity of body contact confrontational sports, which function as an endlessly renewed symbol of masculinity, and in understanding the violence frequently found in sporting milieus. Another reason for the veneration of hegemonic masculinity is the fact that its continued existence establishes and reaffirms a very specific gendered power dynamic. In order for hegemonic masculinity to be sustained as a pattern, Connell explains the practice requires the policing of men as well as the exclusion or discrediting of women, yet another not-so-hidden agenda of Western patriarchy. Hegemony does not mean violence, although it can be supported by force. It means ascendancy achieved through culture, institutions, and persuasions. Being top dog means being a force to be reckoned with, practicing an ultimate incarnation of masculinity and embodying it continuously. As Connell and Missander Schmidt explain in their article, this is very hard to do, and even harder to successfully sustain without consequence to the victor in terms of emotional and physical damage. O.J. Simpson certainly performed masculinity to a T when he was first emerging onto the pop culture scene. The origins of his star power can be traced back to the football field, where Simpson played for USC. He went on to play professionally for both the Buffalo Bills and the San Francisco 49ers, and is largely still considered one of the greatest athletes in American history. The discipline, control, and power one must exert upon oneself and others to truly succeed as a college and then professional athlete is not a small feat. It is precisely for these reasons that people flock to football games and hang posters of athletes up on their wall. These men are idolized for their abilities, and as their careers blossom, they, like celebrities, come to represent more than just themselves. This potentiality athletes have sets them apart from the rest of us, for they are achieving, doing, and performing physical triumphs that the majority of us simply cannot accomplish. Athletes also play into a concept called internal hegemony, coined by Dimitri in 2001 and referring to the social ascendancy of one group of men over all other men. 
As far as masculinity as a concept goes, with a particular emphasis on the exertion of power, men who exert their power over other powerful men and win, in other words, contact sport athletes, are positioned at the top of the male dominance pyramid. In her work Stift, Susan Faludi writes, To be a man increasingly means to be ever on the rise, and the only way to know for sure that you are rising is to claim control and crush everyone and everything in your way. Connell even goes so far to cite Messner and investigates athletes' bodies as weapons in driving home his point about how seriously athletes take their physical abilities and by transitive property their male dominance and power. While there is inarguably a genetic component to their accomplishment on the sports field, athletes are venerated more so because they embody an almost superhuman-like faculty for self-discipline and self-control, and a determined willingness to practice and excel no matter what. Athletes push limits, break boundaries, and set the world on fire when they're truly extraordinary. Put simply, a man is a man because he won't be stopped. He is untouched by society, soaring above it, practically defying gravity itself and how exceptionally he performs his masculinity and his ascendancy over everything in his environment. O.J. Simpson, by almost every account, was this kind of player. Simpson's athletic background is significant in understanding his highly gendered position of power and the way culture refuses to release his athletic achievements despite his horrific, murderous actions. Susan Bordeaux, in The Male Body, explains this strange phenomenon in so many words. As spectators, we find these displays of masculine aggression exciting in the ring or on the field, precisely because they break with the taboos of civilization— act out the forbidden aggression in all of us. Indeed, we want the boxer or the athlete to be as uncivilized as he can be. We reward him for it. In the meantime, the boxer, conduit for all the suppressed aggression, vestigial repository of primal masculinity, is a real person who is learning in the very fibers of his being, his body, that civilized taboos against violence do not apply to him. The cultural adoration of those athletes who perform masculinity for us often continues even after they have been charged with or convicted of serious crimes. The public's denial, induced by said adoration, occurs precisely because we as a culture and society so value and enjoy an athlete's ability to defy laws and rules on the field. It's hard for us to believe, or more so, it's hard for us to accept, that superhuman athletes who can perform so exceptionally for us can also perform so abhorrently. They occupy and operate in a special primitive arena within our overly civilized society. Thinkers like Freud and Foucault would probably argue that we, culture, and society at large need these athletes so that we may live vicariously through them. They are vehicles, as Bordeaux says, vessels for our repressed anger, rage, impulses, drives, and desires, which we are by and large forbidden to act upon. But the problem with OJ is that he was not just an athlete. Simpson has been thought of as so much more, for he has occupied so many different realms and played a variety of roles throughout his career in the public eye. He has embodied a nice guy, a murderer, a product endorser, a celebrity, a husband, a friend, a superstar, a humble athlete, an uncle, a victim, a convict. Simpson's archetypal role is absolutely schizophrenic. The public simply cannot process how one man can be and do all these things at once. For in mythical narrative and supposedly in life, conflicting archetypes are not supposed to be embodied by the same man. Carl Jung's work on archetypes and the collective unconscious elaborates on archetypes and their cultural broad-scale implications. Jung believed archetypal figures were essential to the collective's understanding of themselves and the world in which they live. The concept of the Great Mother is one of the analyst's more successful examples, illustrating how every individual is familiar with the emotional, religious, and primitive registers of the mother archetype, found everywhere in nature and certainly in culture. However, the Great Mother is only one in a grander collection of characters to pick from, and Young's argument is that the public has already inherently ingested and understood this cast of characters. 
They sit in a little reservoir in the psyche waiting to be activated. And indeed, they are activated simply by way of the moment-to-moment interactions that people have in their everyday lives. This concept functions not unlike the reading of bodies. Archetypes, Jung says, can be named and have an invariable nucleus of meaning, but always only in principle, never as regards its concrete manifestation. In other words, archetypes are notions, abstractions, elements of the unconscious mind. But mechanisms like the media know just which notes to play to get specific ones to dance in our collective psyche. Processed on an unconscious plane, these archetypes are almost like universal characters, identifiable on a subliminal level by the inborn, pre-conscious, and unconscious individual structure of the psyche. Archetypes are processed as such, unconsciously, allowing us to understand our reality and the situations life presents us with. The media, in particular, is a propagator of Jung's notion of the archetype, for in all media narratives, each celebrity, icon, or public figure plays a particular part. Many of these parts are eternal, with roots in some of the oldest tales known to man. This fascinating and anxiety-inducing element about O.J. Simpson is that he does not fit into a category and is unidentifiable as playing one particular part, embodying one particular character, and living out the trajectory of one particular archetype. Young's work on archetype as a hypothetical model, something like the pattern of behavior, in other words, the représentation collective, are relating to myth and esoteric teaching, functions to explain the cognitive frameworks at play when a comedian or the public attempt to resolve and achieve closure on the curious case of exactly who O.J. Simpson is and who exactly men are. Considering the threat O.J. poses to society as an iconic figure, Freud explains, in the case of every individual who's supposed to join the work of civilization, there is a risk that his sexual instincts may refuse to be put to use. Freud's preoccupation is of a sexual nature, but what must not be ignored is how the psychoanalyst describes sex specifically as put to use. The imperative and transitive argument here is that the individual is used by society and that bodies are used by culture. If men's bodies are fetishized in culture as icons of control, power, and so on, then their social and cultural power and currency derive specifically from their ability to exert control over their environment. Of the utmost importance is a man's ability to exert control over himself, his impulses, his thoughts, his body, and its expression in the world. And if he can become untouchable, defying the laws of physics, and breaking league records by becoming the first man ever to rush a football field for over 2,000 yards, he's supposedly all the more a man because of it. The turning point of Simpson's career was, of course, the murders and the subsequent trial. As a public figure and murderer, Simpson represents a threat to the societal order. The precariousness of society is what culture will not admit to itself, and what so often gets concealed by fetishizing the body or the celebrity. These are the fundamental stakes when discussing the issue of OJ. Freud writes, Society does not wish to be reminded of the precarious portion of its foundations, for civilization has been created at the cost of satisfaction of the instincts. This statement is perhaps one of the most powerful in the analyst's work for our purposes here, because it explains why Simpson is such a point of fascination to this day. When one person like OJ disregards this general and sacrificial order of society, acting on his killer instinct and completely ignoring the building blocks to be respected for the sake of maintaining that society, he presents culture with a threat, and a valid one at that. Freud explains, Civilization is, to a large extent, being constantly created anew, since each individual who makes a fresh entry into human society repeats the sacrifice of instinctual satisfaction for the benefits of the whole community. In other words, one small slip-up could theoretically trigger a domino effect of sorts. And while this sounds somewhat sensational, Freud is quick to point out just how insecure the societal pillar of communal repression is. Civilization is founded upon the social contract of repression of desires, instincts, and impulses that are policed by individuals themselves, and outside of that by the law, for the greater good. Michel Foucault's ideas about biopower elaborate on the body as a site that must be bounded, whose drives must be supervised so that society can function in a rigorous, safe, controlled manner. The body is a meeting point of physical drives and societal supervision of those drives. 
Culture superimposes itself onto the body in its most basic form and expression and begins to regulate it, instituting gendered codes and enforcing them and policing the body's infinite ability to express, making control a key operation. Furthermore, the disciplinary society within which we live functions much like Foucault's concept of the panopticon. While this may appear to be more so today than it has ever been before, the disciplinary nature of society has been in place for centuries and functions on the mutual understanding embedded in civilization that instincts and drives are to be repressed, policed, and kept under control. When an individual or body does not act in accordance with all of the aforementioned societal norms and regulations, a small threat to civilization in general is made. Taking this one step further, when a fetishized body, a celebrity, an icon, breaks the cardinal rules of self-policing and self-control, the threat posed to society at large is much greater. Freud employs a term called scotomization, defined as the mental blocking of unwanted perceptions. Culturally, what is being scotomized by way of propagating certain values, like heterosexuality, reproductive futurism, self-control, repression of drives, and bodily boundedness, to name a few, is how precarious the foundation of society truly is, should all of us simply stop repressing and policing ourselves so agreeably. So long as these aforementioned pillars are upheld and practiced by all, society will continue to be an ordered framework, expunging chaos and disorder at every turn. As Freud explains, society believes that no greater threat to its civilization could arise than if instincts were to be liberated. This is the meta-threat posed by O.J.'s case on a cultural scale by way of his body, his drives, and the many contradictory archetypes he represents. Critical race theory plays an elemental role in understanding O.J., for Simpson did perform blackness and successful blackness at first. He was an idol in the African-American community, but also transcended and extended what blackness meant for an individual. He was not subjected to the same ideologies and experiences any black man had to endure and live with, for he was a celebrity much beloved for most of his career. The trial, long after the peak of his celebrity, resulted in a polarization of forces that seemed to be racially divided. Before the trial, Simpson was a celebrity. During the trial, Simpson came to represent black men, a tactic employed by his own defense team. He also represented black victimhood, police discrimination, and so many other representations tied intimately to the experience of being African-American in 1990s America. Many ignore the role of social structure in assigning meaning to race, but the determining social structure is particularly relevant when looking at OJ's social standing and his transcendence of race itself prior to and after the murders. Simpson's blackness represented or meant something very different when compared to someone else's due to his celebrity and belovedness stemming from his successful performance in the sports arena. Van Dyke's emphasis on the social realm is heavy-handed in her work. The critics suggest that the race problem lies in the nature of American society, rather than in the construct of race itself. Consider, too, that O.J. and Nicole were a mixed-race couple. With another nod to Van Dyke's theories, interracial coupling was fairly progressive at the time, and Nicole and O.J. were a public couple both accepted and celebrated socially. While they may have still been the topic of debate behind closed doors in more antiquated households, they were a celebrity couple who were a fixture in the tabloids. They symbolized together a type of union. Simpson's actions and murderous behavior threatened that union and reintroduced the notion of the black man as savage, uncontrollable, and in need of containment. These concepts stem from far back, where one could draw upon Anne McClintock's writings on soap and civilization. The black man was presented to the white man as being in need of colonization due to his supposed inherent and essential savagery. Many pairs soap ads were born of this idea, and while we look back on these today and cringe, the foundational, constructed notions about race that the ads conveyed still linger in the cultural consciousness. Ads can be revoked, but when it comes to ideas, once the seed is planted, culture does not simply forgive and forget. Simpson's murders echoed this construct. His out-of-bounds body, unpoliced, homicidal, and out-of-control reminded culture's subconscious 
of the fear that said pairs ads instilled within the white man and instated in Western culture. And so it was the media this time that began a process of colonization, using all of its abilities, technologies, and resources to find out absolutely everything about OJ, broadcasting it all for the world in an attempt to regain control of his out-of-bounds body. It is evident that Simpson's iconography is entwined with being African-American. In his Oscar-winning documentary, O.J. Made in America, one of director Ezra Edelman's interviewees says of Simpson in his career pre-trial, he transcended race and color to the exalted status of celebrity. It is imperative to flesh out the rich and profoundly symbolic history of race, which informs O.J. as a star text. African-Americans, particularly African-American men, have been haunted by the mythology that surrounds the American black man, based upon the real persecution of black men in American history. In her work, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, Michelle Wallace succinctly explains, What most people see when they look at the black man is the myth. This is particularly significant due to the added layer of representation activated when confronted with a case study of an African-American male. Wallace indicates just as bodies are read by way of gender, reading bodies occurs racially. Understanding how bodily readings are informed by signifiers is facilitated by venturing into the territory of myth, employing mythologies by Roland Barthes. Barthes explains that myth is predominantly discursive and is essentially reality converted into speech a type of speech chosen by history. The modes of writing or of representations that myth is comprised of dictate its ebb and flow, but at the very crux of the matter of myth is the simple idea of signs and speech, all of which make up story. The largely semiological nature of myth is not dissimilar to Butler's notion of performative bodies. Both Bart and Butler understand and argue for the demystification of myth, in other words, the laying bare of the mechanisms beneath the surface attitudes about a subject. Bart explains that the meaning must be able to hide in the form, in the vessel, in the body, in the signifier which is the vehicle for the grander and often historically informed signified meaning. Bart references a Paris Match magazine with a young black man in a French uniform saluting on its cover, explaining that while this may in fact be the image pictured, the latent and potent signified is that of the power of the French Empire, its global ascendancy and its domination of many peoples. The subtle process Bart lays bare for the reader here is no different from the close reading with respect to myth executed by culture and the public on O.J. Simpson, before and especially after his trial. The black man in America, as the signifier, conveys many meanings and signifies, and carries with him a history of oppression, violence, persecution, associations with fear, anger, sexuality, primitivity, slavery, and so on. Many of these are constructed concepts, created culturally and implemented by institutional forces far beyond the control of any particular individual. However, it is the individuals who suffer and who are burdened with carrying the heavy weight of all of these ideologies. The burden is particularly weighty for the African-American man. All the imagery Wallace refers to in her work on African-American history is precisely what haunted the OJ case, and is partly why so many people rallied in the streets for Orenthal, who no longer represented himself but instead was an arrow pointing to all of the atrocities committed against the black man in the ghost of America's past. Wallace explains, The picture drawn for us over and over again is of a man who is a child, who is the constant victim, a concept that can be and was deployed in Simpson's favor. This very notion was utilized by the defense time and again during his trial. In fact, Simpson's constructed victimization by the defense hinged upon these concepts of the black man as victim, as symbol, as signifier without choice in the matter of what he culturally, racially, societally signifies. Simpson, the defense argued, does not, did not, and cannot choose what he signifies. And this was a battle cry heard round the world by anyone who's ever been discriminated against because of their race or physical appearance and the related cultural cues these conveyed. It was perhaps the most brilliant move made by Simpson's defense team 
and I would even argue one of the most manipulative and ingenious courtroom tactics utilized in the history of the American criminal justice system. It should be noted, though, Wallace is quick to point out that the paradox grows as time marches on. As society progresses racially, she writes, the black man is no longer a pathetic, beaten-down slave, if indeed he ever was only that. He's grown, progressed, developed as a man, and if one recognizes him as a man, he must begin to carry some measure of responsibility for what happens to him. This progression, too, played into the Simpson trial, and was a factor in how the media and the public perceived the defendant. Another interesting and informative racial element is the rich history of slavery and discrimination, particularly how it applies to the black man's concept of his own masculinity. Wallace explains, The slave father did lack traditional authority over his family. He could not control the destinies of either his wife or his children, rendering him out of control and, therefore, as we have learned, emasculated, personally, familially, conceptually, and culturally. The parallels here between Wallace's description of the black male slave, unable to control or influence his own family, and Simpson's well-known domestic situation prior to the murders, cannot be discounted. Control and power are both hot-button topics in the realm of masculinity, but because of the complicated history of African Americans in the United States, the ability to exert power and control takes on an entirely new, more profound and potent meaning to the individual and the collective. In 1971, just one year before John Berger's Ways of Seeing was published, wherein Berger established power as central to manhood, Black Panther Huey P. Newton wrote, To African Americans, power is, first of all, the ability to define phenomena, and secondly, the ability to make these phenomena act in a desired manner. Ironically, Bill Cosby's lawyer read out this same statement by Newton after Cosby's mistrial in 2017. The overlap in definition here between Berger and Newton's ideas about power and hegemonic masculinity is crucial to consider, but Newton takes it all a step further by referencing the ability to control phenomena, to manipulate reality to one's own advantage. By Newton's standards, Simpson fits the bill, embodying power to the utmost and completely fulfilling his definition of it. The force that was Simpson was somehow able to sway everything in his favor, following what happened that tragic night in Brentwood, becoming a downright phenomenon himself. Finally, it is important to note that an added layer of anxiety surrounding Simpson's masculinity stems from his interracial relationship with Nicole Brown. Nicole, who was a tall, gorgeous Beverly Hills blonde, is representative in her own right. Richard Dyer mediates upon the white blonde icon in his work on Marilyn Monroe and Heavenly Bodies, explaining, To be the ideal, Monroe had to be white. And not just white, but blonde, the most unambiguously white that you can get. This race element conflates with sexuality. The white woman is offered as the most highly prized possession of the white man, and the envy of all other races. Thus, there is the notion of the universally desired white goddess at work, constructing and insidiously implementing a racial hierarchy of desirability. As such, the white woman is representative in culture, and particularly to the African-American man, as the ultimate sexual conquest and furthermore symbol of status, signifying said man's ability to transcend race and acquire the white woman, that which supposedly belongs to the white man. Elridge Cleaver, in a brutally honest and self-reflective essay, details his own personal struggles with this racial hierarchy of desirability, describing a fellow black inmate's insight into the predicament. He said, All our lives, black men have had the white woman dangled before our eyes like a carrot on a stick before donkey. Look, but don't touch. In Cleaver's writings from Soul on Ice, he contemplates his choice to hang a white pinup on his wall in his jail cell. He muses, I realized I had chosen the picture of a white girl over available pictures of black girls. Was it true? Did I really prefer white girls over black? Yes, I did. Cleaver outlines the details of an incident in which a guard rounding on his jail cell rips that picture off his wall, disallowing the prisoner from even fantasizing about the white pinup. 
Simpson, on the other hand, when speaking in representational terms, managed to actually acquire his white goddess in the realm of the real. For the conceptual dimension, this was fairly revolutionary. Simpson's marriage to Nicole undoubtedly contributed to his representational iconography as a man in the hegemonic sense. Simpson's defiance and surpassing of racial and societal boundaries in acquiring Nicole further solidified his masculinity, his prowess, his potency, and his ability to act as he pleases regardless of racial or societal constraints. These abilities to overcome regardless of circumstance are, according to Berger, Connell, and Misunderschmidt, what makes up a man and what constitutes a successful masculine performance. So there it is, chapters one and two of my master's thesis, Investigating the Crisis of Masculinity. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to DM us on Instagram at VelvetApp, that's at V-L-V-T-A-P-P. Send us your voice notes. Let me know what you think of this analysis so far. And if you have any personal anecdotes, if you have any differing analyses, I'd like to hear everything that you have to say. And I also want to encourage you to sign up for our app. Now, Velvet is a relationship-oriented dating app that helps you find and keep your person. www.velvetapp.com. That's www.vlvtapp.com. The first thousand subscribers will receive a gold membership for free for life. That's valued at $100 a month for free for life. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity. We're at about 900 subscribers right now. And so there are 100 places left. Get in, get in early. And if enough of you subscribe, we might actually bump that number up to 2,000. See you next week when I dive into chapter three of the thesis and look at the historical and sociopolitical context for the crisis of masculinity and how men have been dealt with by society, by the media, and by culture from the 90s to now.